I'm, did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Amen. I can assure you that I ate well. I woke up this morning, I was still not hungry. It was so good. But even better than the food is always the fellowship. Amen. Right? And even if we didn't get to celebrate maybe with some family members, I know that my family, uh, my dad and my stepmom uh, and my sister were planning on coming into Atlanta for the, for the holidays, for Thanksgiving. Uh, but because of you know, the state of the world, they did not. Uh, it was still good to be with with those around you, and especially today, where we get to come and we get to fellowship with our church. Amen? I mean, there's truly nothing better, in my opinion, than hanging out with your brothers and sisters at church. I mean, it's just, it's the greatest. We are in a sermon series, and we have taken upon ourselves the monumental task to journey through the book of Numbers. And today, I, oh, I am so excited because today we get to arrive at really the most critical moment in all of the book of Numbers. And I say that because Moses is the author of Numbers, and we've talked about how the book of Numbers really should not be titled that way. It should be titled, The Lord Spoke. That just sounds so much better. Well, what did the Lord say? How did he say it? Did he say it with, with enthusiasm, or did he say it with dread? I mean, how, how is he communicating to his people? Well, he is communicating to his people and his people are grumbling, but Moses, as he's telling the story, he pins the most depressing chapter in all of Numbers, and it's in Numbers chapter 20. But before we can get there, we have to look at how Paul saw the book of Numbers. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, if you're new to the Bible... Uh, we are going to be in page 154. There's a Bible underneath your seat, or maybe underneath the seat in front of you, and we're going to be in page 154 and 155. Now, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. He's writing to, the, to this church, and Paul used to hate Christians. In fact, he used to persecute Christians. He thought Christians were the worst thing the world had ever brought into existence. So much so that Paul held the coats of religious leaders as they stoned Stephen, the first Christian, to die for being a Christian, for following the way of Jesus, this Jewish man who went about healing and casting out the sick and forgiving people for their wrongs because Stephen said, I'm going to follow that man, who's also not just man, but God himself, he was stoned. And you have this Jewish leader named Saul, who is also known by Paul, holds the coats. But now he's a Christian. He's, he's had this transformational experience where he saw Jesus on this road as he was on the way to persecute Christians. But now he's, he's a well-established Christian leader. And he's traveling amongst the, world, the, the known world. And he's writing to these churches. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, he starts to recall the story of Numbers. He says this, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ." Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And then Paul goes on and he says, Now these things happened as examples for us, 
So he starts to trace the steps of Israel as Israel was, was delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians by, by stepping through this river, this sea on dry land. What a miracle, right? I mean, you ever tried to part water? I mean, it's hard. I mean, just go and turn the faucet on when you get home and just, just you know, Mr. Miyagi, right? You just get ready and then you just, it's hard. Your hand is going to get wet. I assure you. Now, if, you, if your hand does not get wet, you come back and see me because I want to see this. Right? I mean, trying to part water is difficult, but for God, it's easy. And so God parts the Red Sea, and, and the Israelites walk through on this dry land. And then Paul goes on, and he says, immediately after they get to the other side, they start to, they start to get hangry. And they start to long for the good old days, which was days filled with slavery, but, but they start to get hangry. And so God gives them this thing called manna. And they start to eat it. They start to be sustained by God. They don't even have to, to go and hunt for their food. God brings them some quail, but then they get so tired of the quail. And then he's, he goes on and he says that they drank this water because there was this incident in Exodus 17 where they're, they're, they're hungry and they're thirsty. And so God tells Moses to take a staff and to hit a rock, and out of the rock comes water. Now, if you're like me, my brain is pretty skeptical. I tend to be very, okay, let me, let me see it work before I, before I buy. I'm just, I'm, I'm overly cynical sometimes, and I have to put myself in check, right? But sometimes when we read the Bible, we tend to think, well, surely this could not be historical. I mean, come on, parting a sea, water coming out of a rock. I mean, I, I've seen some rocks in my day, and I've never seen rod, water just come because I, I hit it, right? But for Paul... This was authoritative. For Paul, this was very historical because Paul later on in the same letter, in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection of this man named Jesus and he says that after Jesus rose, he went and appeared to over 500 people at one time and then he says you can go and fact check him because some of those people who saw the risen Jesus are still alive. And so Paul is not even concerned with my first objection, which is I'm not sure if I'm sold on water actually coming out of a rock. But Paul is saying, well, okay, okay, well, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. But for me, it's authoritative. For me, it's historical. For me, it's rooted in reality. And he says, you can go and ask some people who have witnessed something even greater than water coming out of a rock. It's a dead man being raised to life after being killed. But he goes on and he says, These are the reason, this is the reason why we study or why we know this story. Because it's an example for us in verse 6. Now these things happen as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And then he goes on and he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So the main emphasis on why we go back to this story in numbers is so that we don't get wrapped up in idolatry. Now, if you think about idolatry, idolatry really is letting something influence you. It influences the way that you live your life. So you might have an idol in your life and you work your schedule around it. So do you work for your job or does your job work for you? Would be a question. Do you, do you work for your relationship or does your relationship work for you? Right? Technically, we as human beings are all gifted with this ability to choose. And so we have the option to choose to pursue what is an unalienable right, the pursuit of happiness. And yet, often we get caught up in a lifestyle or a, a, a life to where all of a sudden we're exhausted because we're bent over worshiping all of these things that we thought were bringing us happiness. 
because we don't get to take the vacation that we wanted to go because we worked for the job that would allow us to have the money to take the vacation to go to the land that we want to go to, but now we don't have the time that we can take off because our job doesn't give that to us. But we started the process so that we could go on the vacation that we wanted to go towards or that we could have that house in that area that we wanted to, but now we don't actually get to enjoy it. Why? Because we have to always be at work. We are naturally idolatrous. We naturally follow things. And that's because that's a design aspect. We were designed with that intention, not because God wanted us to be designed in a sense where we bow to things, but we're relational beings. And so we form relationships with things all the time, and if we allow bad, relational, uh, bad relationships to become ultimate things, we'll become exhausted, drained, depressed, and unhappy. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to get wrapped up into this. I don't want you to be influenced by all of these things that other people tend to go after. And so we're going to recount the book of Numbers. And there is an incident in the book of Numbers that highlights influence and leadership better than anything else. And it's, it's Moses' lowest moment. Now, I learned about leadership uh, when I was, uh, you know, very young. But there's this moment that's as, as clear as day. And it's in the Atlanta airport. Now, if you've ever been to the Atlanta airport, you know that there's like this tram system, right? That's how you get to your gates. Is, you, you, you hop, is it called the tram? I think it's called the tram. I'm going to work on call it the tram. You hop on the tram, and it takes you to gate C or to gate B or to baggage claim or where, wherever, right? But you don't have to ride it. You can walk from terminal to terminal or from gate to gate, right? From terminal to terminal. You can, you, or you could run. But what happens if you're, if you're about to miss your flight? See, I was in the Atlanta airport, and our team had just landed. We were getting off, but our, connection, our connector flight was, we were, we were pushing it. And my assistant coach, Colton McDonald, cool as day. I mean, he does not, he, he doesn't get nervous, he doesn't get stressed out. I mean, he is just calm as can be. And we're walking, and we get to the tram, and we realize that we just missed it. And we're looking at our time, and we're like, man, I, I, we're, carrying, we're carrying all of our luggage, and we're... we're we're trying to make it to our flight so we can make it back home to Salt Lake City because some of us had school, you know, and, and all life to continue on and, and whatnot. And, and he keeps looking at his watch and he's like, yeah, yeah it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. We're going we're gonna to make it. We're standing there. And then all of a sudden we hear the last call for our flight and his face just turned and he just said, run. And so now there is... 10 of us, because we were split into two groups, there's 10 of us sprinting past all of those, the areas where you stand to get on the tram so that we can make it to our terminal to try to get onto our airplane. It was that moment that I realized, even though I was the captain of the team, that I was not the leader in that situation. That there was someone who had a higher authority than me. And I was looking to him to influence whether or not I should be anxious or not. Whether or not I should be calm or not. Because leadership has this level. Really, leadership is just influence. How are you influenced? So there are two leaders that I want to talk about. On the right, no, on the left, there is the captain. His name is Steve Iserman. Now, he is the greatest hockey player of all time. I will debate that every second of every day. Some will say it's Wayne Gretzky. Some will say it's a, you know, Alexander Ovechkin. Steve Eiserman is the greatest hockey player of all time, and here's why. Detroit. Detroit Red Wings. 1983. They're thinking of selling the team. They're selling the team because nobody, nobody wants to go and watch. This is, this is a hockey town. 
and yet nobody wants to go and watch. And here comes a kid, his name is Pat LaFontaine, and he's from Michigan. He's homegrown, and he's so good that management and the organization of, of the Red Wings think if we draft the local kid, our organization will be saved. And so the, 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 day, the night of the draft comes, and they have the third overall pick. And Pat LaFontaine gets taken second by the New York Islanders and becomes a Hall of Fame player. They could, have, they could have not gone wrong to draft the local kid. He would have sold tickets. His whole family would have been in, in the stadium watching the games. They would have been season ticket holders. I mean, it was a foolproof strategy, except for the Islanders took him before they could. And so they had to settle on the skinny kid from Canada with a last name that nobody knew how to pronounce, Steve Iserman. And Steve Iserman comes in as this, this offensive extraordinaire, one who can very easily put points on the board, but he's not known as being a two-way player. He's not known as being a complete player. And by the time that he turns 21 after being in the league for two and a half years, he gets handed the captaincy. And he's the captain for the rest of his time. And he only plays for the Detroit Red Wings. And he single-handedly changes the entire culture of their organization. Because Steve Eiserman did not care if it was preseason or the Stanley Cup playoff game seven. He played it the exact same. As the best player on the team, he laid down and he blocked shots to where he would get injured. He, would, he was the first to the rink and last to leave. He always took under every new coming player or incoming player under his wing to help them understand how the organization was, that it was always next man up. You were always doing it for your teammates. And so Steve Eiserman came to embody one word, sacrifice. And because he sacrificed for the greater good, he became the captain. On the right is a man by the name of Hannibal Barca, a Carthaginian general known as the greatest strategist the world has ever seen. In fact, uh, uh, Machiavelli, when he writes, what is it, The Prince? The, the, uh, what's that book called? The Prince, right? He's, he's talking about Hannibal Barca. Hannibal Barca is in his mind as he writes this book because Hannibal Barca was a general of Carthage, and he raised up a military to go and combat Rome, and he did it by buying his military. He bought mercenaries. He took the silver from Spain. In, in all the years, he took war elephants and he marched them through the Swiss Alps only to then go home after Rome was in his sights. He was so close to being the general that conquered Rome, this unconquerable empire. In all of those years, dealing with mercenaries, not once did he ever have a mutiny. Not once did he ever have an uprising where people said, you're no longer fit to lead. These are individuals that have been bought. Their services have been bought, and yet Hannibal Barca somehow knew how to corral them. Well, Hannibal Barca, when he would camp for the night, he did not camp in the general's quarters. No, he would go and he would camp with the men. Because in his eyes, he did not elevate himself to be something better than the men that were going to go to war with him because he figured if you were willing to go to war with me we were on equal playing field because you and I could both die in every battle and so Hannibal Barca known as the greatest strategist he, he won every battle except for his last he embodied sacrifice because all good leaders tend to have this level of influence and it's because they know when to sacrifice and so Moses knowing 
that he was gifted this privilege at his birth. It says this in Hebrews about him. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses sacrificed. He had everything. I mean, there's, there's a joke that, that Texans have always had about the Dallas Cowboys. Because it, it was when Tony Romo was the quarterback, he was always injured. And so he was always on the sideline. And we used to always say he had the greatest, he, he had the greatest, uh, what's, what's the word? He had the greatest spot. He had the greatest seat. He was the starting Cowboys quarterback. Never had to play because he was injured. Gets to sit on the sideline. Gets the title of starting quarterback. And yet doesn't have to play the game. And so if they lose, it's not his fault because he's the starting quarterback, but he's injured. And he gets the best seat in the house because he's on the sideline. And yet, no responsibility. Moses had no responsibility. He wasn't going to be Pharaoh. And yet, he could have just been one of the, the, the higher-ups in the Egyptian economy, one of the, one of the royal family, but without any responsibility other than to just not bring shame upon the kingdom. I mean, he, that's, that's it. I mean, he had it easy. And yet he says, nope, instead I'll go and I'll, I'll be a pilgrim with this group of wandering grumblers through the, through the wilderness, through the desert, into a promised land. He gave up. He sacrificed. And yet when we come to Numbers chapter 20, we see Moses finds himself in a very, very dark moment. So turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Starting in verse 2, Moses has just lost his sister. So he's dealing with personal loss. He's, his sister, who was the sister that helped save him at his birth, has now passed away. She was, she was a pillar in his life, and yet she's passed. And later on, his brother, Aaron, is going to pass in the same chapter. And in between those two monumental losses... Come Moses's lo- or comes Moses' lowest moment. Numbers chapter 20, verse 2. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt? To bring us into this wretched place. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. So Israel starts doing what they do so well, right? And we've been seeing this time and time again. They start to grumble. You ever get told that life will become easier if you become a Christian? You ever get told that? I mean, I was told that, and then I immediately got introduced to losing friends because I was going to become a Christian. I was, going to become, I was going to start judging them for their recreational practices. But yet I had been told that if I was going to become a Christian, it was, everything was going to be better. And yet my introduction to Christianity was losing some friends. Oh, man, God, what? Come on, God. You told me, God, you said it was going to be better. You said an abundant life. You said peace and comfort. And here Israel is like, we were, told, we were promised freedom. And yet, where's the Where's the freedom? I mean, we're, on, we're free. We're not, we're not the ma- our Egyptian masters are not telling us what to do, what time to wake up and how to build, you know, statues and, and things like that. But we're going we're gonna to starve to death. And notice their claim is, there's, 
When you, verse 4, why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? I mean, they're, they're questioning God. You're, it doesn't seem like you're, being, you're, you're following through on what you promised here. It doesn't seem like you're, you're actually doing what you said you were going to do. And Moses shows us a, a good aspect of leadership. In verse 6, Moses and Aaron, they come in from the presence of the assembly, and they go to this doorway, the tent of meeting, and they fall on their faces. And so they recognize that they might not necessarily know what to do in this situation because they're not going to be able to, to produce water out of nothing. And so where do they go? They go to God. Now, sometimes we, in our experience, we end up in situations where we don't know what the answer is. Right? You, you ever be that kid in class where you got called on and you weren't paying attention? And so you just, out of nowhere, were just like, ah, oh, uh, you know, or you think that it sounds good, and so you say it, and then the teacher just looks at you. Or maybe you're a teacher and you've had a student do that, and you're, and, and you're just like, what planet were they, were they, where are they coming from? Right? I mean, it, it's almost like, okay, we were promised this. And it's not happening. So Moses and Aaron, they go to the tent of meeting. They go to where God reveals himself. And they basically say, God, what's happening? What's the issue? But notice, God speaks to them. Verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So the command is to go to the rock and speak to it. That's the command. But notice what Moses does. He's, he's given up the, the privilege of being in Pharaoh's household with no responsibility. He's given up the comforts of Egypt where he would have people wait on him. And now he's wandered through the wilderness for, for 38 years. 38 years of sacrifice. He's wandered through the wilderness. He's dealt with people who are impatient. You ever been on a road trip with the people who are like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? I mean, he's dealt with that for 38 years. He's been patient. He's been humble. He's been meek. And here he does exactly what he's always done. He doesn't know what to do, so he goes to God, and God tells him what to do. And yet... Finally, for the first time, Moses cracks. Verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Moses addressing Israel, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. Moses, everything right. Meekness and humility. And yet in a moment he cracked and he sinned and the promised land was taken from him. Now you might be thinking, come on God. I mean, he cracked. I mean, let's be honest. 
You've been so patient this whole time, and now Moses just has a, a slight hiccup. He has a slight moment of impatience. And so he goes against what God says, and he just hits the rock twice. And now you're going to prevent him from entering into the promised land? Moses shows us a, a very, very strong responsibility of influence. We are accountable for the influence that we have. We are stewards of the level of leadership that is given to us. Think about it from this perspective. Who has been the leader of Israel? Moses. He was the one who came back after killing an Egyptian guard and being in the wilderness pastoring for, or uh, pastoring, shepherding for 40 years sheep. He comes back and through great signs that God does, brings Israel up out of slavery and is leading them to the promised land. And for all that time, Moses has been the one that has been closest with God. And so if Moses shows that it is okay to go against what God says, and Moses has been the one who is deemed closer to God, think about the level of influence that has on the rest of the camp. I believe that we're in, a, we're in an age where there's a leadership void. I don't think that we have very many sound leaders operating currently. We, allow, we give people so many passes. We give leaders passes all the time. It doesn't matter if they lie. It doesn't matter if they, if they sell or throw you under the bus. As long as they include you in the team of sorts. My wife and I, we just finished watching Survivor. We had never been a, a big fan, or we'd never really seen Survivor. But Survivor just came on, you know, one of the streaming platforms, and we watched the whole season. And I was amazed the whole time on the level of deception that happens in Survivor. I mean, that's all it is. That's the game. It's just deceiving. It's making promises and then just turning the other way. And we just saw the season where this man named Tony, he wins. He wins the season. He not once, in, in Survivor, you, you compete in these challenges, and if you win the challenge, you get immunity, and then you can't be voted off. Tony never once won immunity, but he, but he promised on his wife, on his kids, on his, he was a cop, on his badge, on his, on, his, on his father, that he would not vote for individuals, and then every time that the perfect moment came, he would vote for them, and they'd be eliminated. And he won Survivor. And yet... We have leaders that operate the same exact way, and we give them a pass, and we let them get the million dollars, which is what Tony won for winning the season of Survivor. We're in a leadership void. Moses here stumbled, and yet he had a responsibility to reflect who God was in, in his goodness, because God spoke with Moses face to face as man speaks with a friend. Now, this is not because Moses was privileged. That's not why. Sometimes we look at, oh, Moses just had that privilege. And so it's kind of strict that God would, uh, after smiting a rock twice, would prevent the promised land from being given to him. No, no, that's, that's not why. See, Moses was willing to respond to what God was doing. Just like the disciple John who calls himself the beloved disciple. It's not because Jesus chose John to be the beloved disciple. John pushed himself into that position by saying, I'm going to pursue you, Jesus, more than all of my peers. I don't really care how much they, I, I want them to pursue you, but I'm going to know you better. I'm going to know you on a deeper level. And so I'm going to push myself to know you on that more of an intimate level. And so Moses Knowing God intimately, knowing, being very acquainted with the goodness of God, he stumbles. 
But to us, it sometimes looks like a very small thing. And that's because our idea of sin is not really, uh, we, we don't really give sin the magnitude that it, that it should have. Uh, this is Psalm 105, verse 41. He opened the rock and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. This instance, notice, we've been talking about Moses, and yet Moses disregarded what God had said, and water still flowed because God still cares about Israel. Just because Moses stumbled does not mean that God stops caring about Israel. And so this became an instant where they, they, they wrote a song about this deliverance of, of water coming out of a rock. It was beautiful, beautiful. But in Numbers chapter 20, we see really what Moses' sin was. In verse 9, in verse 10. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Moses no longer considers himself equal with the camp of Israel. He starts to think of himself as better. He starts to think of himself as as superior. He's in the same situation. He's wandering through the wilderness. He's not, he's not like over here, you know, being pampered and, you know, he's being carried to every place, right? No, I mean, it's not, it's not like that. He's sleeping in the same place that the Israelites are sleeping. He's eating the same food. He's drinking the same water. He's in the same exact situation, and yet he starts to elevate himself above them. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? His sin, instead of meekness, it became prideful. And we sometimes look at other individuals and we see what they do and we say, oh, I could never do that. But in reality, within us, we have the same potential. We have the same power to do the exact same thing. They're not any more human than us. And yet, there's sin that happens in the world. And sometimes we look at it and we feel like, oh, it would never be me. I would never do that. Never, 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 never. But within us lies the same potential for harm. And within us lies the same potential to sin. And whether or not our sin is pride or our sin is murder, we're still doing damage to others and to ourselves. There is this book that is a, oh, if you have not read this book, I highly recommend it. It's titled Silence. And it tells the story of two Catholic priests who go to Japan in the 17th century. And they're told that as they're going to go, they're going to find hardships. They're, the two Catholic priests, one of them being named Father Rodriguez, it's a, it's a fictional story. It was, it's been turned into a motion picture directed by Martin Scorsese. Father Rodriguez wants to go because his mentor, or somebody who has influenced him, has renounced his faith. And as a Catholic priest, he cannot believe it because to him, he would go to a martyr's death. He would die holding on to his faith. And so he and a contemporary, they go to 17th century Japan, and what they stumble upon is intense persecution. But it's not persecution that is, that is full of glory, like they thought. No, it is truly, truly persecution. See, this is what the 17th century Japanese would do. If you were a Christian, they would, and they had an assumption that you were a Christian, they would take this, uh, this uh, golden figurine, sometimes silver, sometimes bronze, it was called a fumie, and they would make you place your foot on it, and engraved would be Jesus. And so that's how you would renounce your faith. 
You're just, taking, you're just placing your foot on a, on, a, on a metal plate. That's it. You're not actually renouncing Jesus, right, is what some people might say. But that's how they would get Christians, Japanese Christians, to, to renounce their faith, or that's how they would figure out. And if you weren't willing to step on the fumiye, then you were hung up from your ankles, and you were cut, and you would bleed to death. But the Japanese were very good at getting clergy to renounce their faith because they did not do it the same way. They did not just say, oh, yeah, we know that you're not... They, they didn't bypass a step. They, they didn't say, oh, yeah, we know you're not going to step on the fumier, and so we're going to tie you up and hang you from your ankles. This is, this is what it would look like. They would have this council, and you would have individuals come, and they would, and they would step. And that's how you would renounce your faith, or that's how you would renounce following Jesus. And if you didn't, there were severe consequences. But if you were a clergy, if you were a priest or a pastor, they wouldn't even give you the option... They would instead have you imprisoned and you would have to watch other people suffer because you would not renounce your faith. And so now you have, to, you have to wonder, at what point is it because of me that they're suffering? At what point do, should I? I'm responsible for them suffering. Do I now, in this ethical dilemma, step on the fumier? Do I renounce my faith so that they're no longer having to suffer? And the Japanese knew that if they could get a priest to renounce his faith, he would never have the same level of influence ever again. He, you didn't even have to worry about him. You could let him walk the streets. Because even if he tried to tell other people about Jesus, all of his credibility had been lost. Because when push came to shove, he would crack. And so Father Rodriguez, as he goes over with his contemporary to Japan, they find their mentor. And he's just, he's free. He's able to walk out in the open. In fact, in the, in the film, they, they try to get the influenced, influential uh, mentor to influence the priest to renounce his faith. But it seems like such a small thing to just step on something. It's not, it's not, really, it's not really Jesus. It's not really his face. And yet, the symbolism behind it is so weighty. So weighty. And Moses, he's told to smite a rock and it looks very, initially, very trivial, right? Just, just yeah, he's, he's, he's told to smite a rock in Exodus 17, and then this time he's told to speak to the rock. Well, why would this be so weighty? See, Moses fell into this thing called sin, and sin is this religious word. We, we might characterize sin as anti-love. That's the best way to define sin, because love is you first, me second, always. And so sin would be anti-love, so it would be me first, you second, always. So no matter what, push comes to shove, I'm putting myself first, and you will be second. I will sacrifice you instead of me, so that I can, I can receive the goodness, or that I can receive what is complete, what is, what is pure, what is lovely. Moses, before this incident, as Israel was grumbling, had prayed, God, if you will not forgive them, then blot my name out of the book of life. He had, he had considered himself just like the Israelites. And yet here in this situation, he says, listen here, you rebels, you sinners, you terrible human beings who are just grumbling and, and basically spitting in the face of, of God's grace all the time. I mean, that's basically what Moses is saying. And so Moses, he takes the, the staff and he hits the rock twice. And even though it seems so small to us, 
The magnitude behind it is so powerful. Because who was the rock? See, Paul tells us that the rock was Christ. And so if the rock was Christ, and, and Moses had already in an incident prior had hit a rock and water had come out, and that rock was Christ, and Christ was to be crucified, how many times was Christ to be crucified? Once. And so Christ had already been crucified, symbolically, by Moses hitting the rock. And so now, what was he to do? He's to speak to the rock. Just like we don't have to crucify Christ. Christ doesn't have to be crucified for us every day for us to be forgiven. No, he was offered once for the forgiveness of all sins. And so now what do we do? To receive that forgiveness, we, we ask him for that forgiveness. We speak to the rock. The symbolism behind Moses' action was huge. And yet we look at it and it's like, it's just rock. But as a leader with influence, he had thrown it aside. He had thrown away his influence. And so what happens? Well, his, his judgment is he doesn't get to go to the promised land. You've got to be kidding me, right? I mean, this is my, 38 years of patience and meekness, and because of this, he doesn't get to go to the promised land? God, how are you a good God if that's who you claim to be? That through such a small thing, you would prevent Moses from entering the promised land. Well, I told Don Bunch earlier that I love stories with good endings. I don't like bad endings. I don't like bad endings. That's why I don't like movies that set it up to where there can be a sequel, because that's, that's not a good ending for me. I want the story to be finished. Well, thankfully, Moses' story is, is finished, but in a good way. See, after this incident, we're told in Deuteronomy that Moses went and he prayed with God. Notice, he's just been told he's not going to be enter, entering the promised land. He's the leader. And how does he respond? He does not respond by groveling, by saying, God, you're unfair. God, why would you do this? God, you are not the God that I want to follow anymore. No, instead, he says, I also pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me cross over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. Instead, the Lord said to me, Enough! Do not speak to me any more about this matter. And so Moses, being a good leader, even in stumbling, shows us how to respond. When you lose your influence as a leader, it's nearly impossible to get it back. Nearly impossible. But there's always a possibility, because with God, all things are possible. So Moses would eventually go and die. He would pass away. But in the Bible, there's this thing about death. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that when you die, you're asleep. Rest, you're resting in peace. R.I.P. And so as you die, you're, you're asleep, and there's a first resurrection, and there's a second death mentioned in, in Revelation. And so Moses, he passes away, and then we see him come up in the story of Scripture again. Interesting. In Matthew 17, verse 2 and 3, it says, And he was tra transfigured. This is being Jesus. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So here is, here is Jesus, and he's just taken three of his disciples. 
It's like his, his in crowd of his disciples, and he's, he's brung them up to this mountain, and all of a sudden he's going to show them his divinity, his godliness, right? The very fact that he is God. And so he's transfigured. He turns into God himself in front of them. And with him, there is Moses and Elijah. Elijah being taken up in a chariot of fire in uh, 1 Kings, uh, having never tasted death. And there's Moses who died. We know that Moses died. It tells us that Moses died. So how is Moses there if death is like a sleep? Well, see, there's a resurrection, and God sometimes makes exemptions. Sometimes God allows things to, to happen that don't seem like they should happen, like water coming out of a rock. And so there's Moses. What ground is Moses standing on at the transfiguration? He's in the promised land. So for Moses, as a leader journeying with Israel, stumbles, and he sins. And with sin, there is punishment, because it's anti-love. It's very contrary to the nature of God. And God, being the just judge, judges sin justly. And so Moses was judged justly. He was not allowed to enter the promised land. And then he died, having not entered the promised land. But then he was resurrected and taken to heaven with Jesus, or with God, and here, as Jesus is transfigured, now Moses comes down with Elijah, and he's standing on the promised land. So God, in his goodness, allowed Moses to see the promised land. Death came first. God, in his goodness, is going to follow through on his promises to us, but sometimes death comes first. Does that mean that God will not follow through? No, because sometimes death comes first. But to us as Christians, death is not as scary as it once was. Death does not have the power that it once held because we proclaim a Savior who defeated death. And so we sing, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? No, we know who beat it. His name is Jesus. And so Moses shows us that as a leader... When we stumble, it does not mean the end of the story for us, because how we respond to our stumbling allows us to still lead, if God will let it. Moses went to God and said, Lord, I, I want to go to the promised land. I want to go to the promised land more than anything else. And God said, I'm sorry, Moses, but you sinned, but I will let you see it. Death will just come first, but I will let you see it. Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I don't think Moses would have ever thought, wandering through the wilderness, that he would see the promised land after having died. And yet there he was with Jesus, standing on the very ground that he pleaded to see. Because that's, that's who God is. God has this plan. He has this big picture in mind. He wants everyone to be able to enter that promised land, an eternal promised land, and he's got this great way of going about it. But with leaders, those called to lead, and we're all called to lead. We're, we're called to be a kingdom of priests. And so we're all called to have a level of influence. We're all called to have a level of witness. And so the question is, how are we using our witness? How are we stewarding our witness? Whether or not we're, we're here for the first time, or we're, we're one of the founding members here at our church. 
How are we using our Christian witness? Do people, when they, when they see us, when they, when they worked with us for so long, do they know that we're a Christian? Do our family members, our extended family members, our neighbors, do they know that we're a Christian? Would they know that we're a Christian by our Facebook posts? Would they know that we're a Christian by, by what we like and what we dislike, by what we argue for and what we argue against? And I'm not talking about hijacked Christianity. I'm talking about true Jesus Christianity. Would they know that we are a Christian? Because we're all called to steward our Christian witness. And so the question for us is, how is our Christian witness? Because with being a Christian comes a responsibility. It does. There, there is a responsibility with being a Christian. Christianity is not an individual religion. It is very social religion. It's very social. We gather every weekend to pray together, to read from, from an inspired book together. That's, that's what Christianity is, because we proclaim a risen Savior. And so how is our Christian witness? Moses stumbled, and yet God gave him grace, even though death came first. He still allowed Moses to get to the foot of the promised land. And Moses, the whole time, knowing God's goodness, said, Okay, I'm going to trust in you. And so Moses shows us that even in stumbling as a leader, with God there is redemption, but it's a part of his ultimate plan. And so how is your Christian witness? Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you for the story of Moses. Lord, we thank you for this story because he shows us not only that, uh, that we are, are not above really anyone else, even though sometimes we might think it, sometimes we might see what other people say, we might hear what other people say, we might see the decisions that other people make, and we might start to think, if only they had our intellect, then they wouldn't make those decisions. If only they knew what we know, then, then they wouldn't say that. But Lord, in reality, in your, in your eyes, we're all the same. But Lord, as, as your children, you have given us a great responsibility, not one where we should be fearful of, of, what, we're going, of, of what you're going to do to us if we, if we don't follow through on it, because that's not the God that you are. You don't want us to be fearful. But Father, you have given us a great gift that we are to be stewards of, and that is to share your love to everyone that we meet. And so, Father, help us to be leaders. Help us to, to be influential in the lives of others, not in, in just vain philosophies, but in, in the way of Jesus and your way of love. Lord, we thank you for Thanksgiving, and we thank you for the holiday season, but Lord, we ask that you would just protect us, continue to keep us safe. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you that tonight we have a Vespers that is at 6, that is here, where we hang out. Uh, we have drinks and refreshments. We hang out, and we kind of goof off a little bit. Um, it starts at 6 p.m., and then we have a, a very brief devotional thought, and then we just continue hanging out. It's very, very relaxed. So you are all invited to come. It is here at our church at 6. So, but I hope you have a wonderful Sabbath.